וגם אני פתאום רואה את And welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolot, and it is a great honor and privilege to welcome you to our next episode featuring Tzvi Gluck. Tzvi Gluck is someone who has really just taken charge in pursuing help in matters that so many people are afraid to touch. Uh, he's a pioneer. He's a trailblazer. He's done incredible things, and he's saved who knows countless lives and he is someone that every time i see him thankfully i have a relationship with sweet and every time i see him i'm just like wow how do you do what you do and he's going to share his journey in addition to that all the safety protocols that he and his organization recommend to help keep all of us safe so you're going to learn a lot in this episode besides being inspired by his journey and hopefully it's going to be something that parents teachers community leaders and everyone will just be able to apply and really do whatever we can doing our part to keep our children safe. So without further ado, let me tell you about our guest. From his teenage years and on, Rabbi Tzvi Gluck has distinguished himself in the world of activism. The son of Rabbi Edgar Gluck, a pioneer who set the standard for others to follow in the public service arena, Tzvi grew up in a home where doing for others was part of the daily diet. By the time he was 19, he was heavily involved in Our Place, a Brooklyn drop-in center for victims of abuse and addiction, and within two years, he had deepened his commitment to the Jewish community, joining Queens Hatzalah and serving as a community liaison to the NYPD. An ingrained sense of volunteerism pushed Tzvi to commit himself even further, and he became a cert- certified as a paramedic and took on the position of chaplain for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, sharing his phone number with anyone needing help navigating a personal crisis Tzvi became the go-to guy in any emergency, with rabbis and community leaders worldwide reaching out to him at all hours of the day and night. With the encouragement of community leaders, Tzvi founded Amudim Community Resources in 2014, formalized his many efforts helping the Jewish community all across the globe. In just a few short years, Amudim has become the address for anyone in crisis, fielding thousands of phone calls, referring clients for services that best meet their needs, working to prevent tragedies by promoting education and awareness, and partnering with the NYPD to offer trainings throughout the greater New York area. Tzvi, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Thank you so much for having me. So. I want to ask you first, you know, you, I read in your bio that, uh, that uh, you know, your father, Rib Edgar, was a noted Oscan. So it sounds like you grew up in, you grew up in that type of environment. And I want to know if you could share with our listeners um, a little bit of the home you grew up in, uh, you know, what that experience was like and how it shaped who you are today. So uh, I'm not sure that that's the, uh, <laughs> you know, the way to start, and you'll understand why in a second. Um, yes, I did grow up in a home that was very involved in public service, which is actually why I um, had said that I would never get into public service. Now, <laughs> meaning no disrespect to my father, who I love, <clears throat> you know, very, very much, and who has truly pioneered um, chesed and, you know, helping others, you know, in the United States uh, since, you know, uh, the Holocaust, you know, whether it's being one of the founders of Atzala, uh, drafting the first uh, autopsy bill um, anywhere in the world, which was in New York, you know, that uh, prohibiting autopsies for religious reasons or something that to some people seem as mo- very minor, but to my father, and I think was tremendous, you know, setting up the Mincha area on the side of the New York State Thruway, which thousands upon thousands of people utilize, um, you know, growing up in that home, my father was the only game in town. And it definitely took a toll. I'm not going to argue that. And like I said, that's why for me, I very much did not want to get into call work. I actually was hoping to go into the world of business and, you know, make a lot of money and do a lot of, you know, other things. Um, But I guess, uh, you know, as we say, uh, you know, 
we have one set of plans and the man above has others. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. Man plans and God laughs. So tell us how you officially got into this claw work. What was your first position? Uh, so that's actually a, it's an interesting story. I've said it a few times. So it really started when I was 19, as you had mentioned, um, two of my close friends had passed away. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, two of my close friends had passed away back to back. One of them was high on drugs and died in a car accident as a result of it. And the other one actually um, committed suicide, uh, leaving a suicide note about the sexual abuse that he had endured. So I started getting involved initially by volunteering at our place and just trying to help. You know, it was a drop-in center in Brooklyn for teens at risk, <clears throat> which, by the way, I'm proud to say I'm still very heavily involved in, and I, I love the program. Um, and at one point, um, my father uh, was leaving town, as he frequently did, and I had said to him something like, "You know what? This time around, let me get your uh, let me get your pager." You know, those days weren't smartphones. There weren't even cell phones. I mean, I think my father might've already had one built into his car. I don't remember exactly. And everything was on a Rolodex. Uh, for those who don't remember what a Rolodex is, that's where you actually write down somebody's name and phone number and information in alphabetical order and actually go through this. You know, I should have one just to show it, but basically um, go through it to find the proper contact info. And for my father, he was like ecstatic, like what you want to take my pagers while I'm gone. And I'm like, yeah, I want to, you know, I'll help you out. And while he was actually on the plane leaving and again, no Wi-Fi, no smartphones. Um, I got a call about somebody that uh, unfortunately passed away young and the family was from another country and they needed to, uh, you know, get the nifter released and they wanted to avoid an autopsy. So I, you know, got the page and I ran to my father's house and I went through his Rolodex and I called up the chief medical examiner and I remember it was a Sunday. And I, I remember saying, hi, doc, it's Zvi uh, Gluck, Rabbi Gluck's son. I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to be telling you or asking you, but here's the name of the person that died. Here's the name of the funeral home. This is when they want to leave. Just let me know when it's all done so I can make sure that they can take it from there. Anyway, he calls me up about 45 minutes later. And again, I had to stay in the house then waiting for the call back. You know, again, it was a very different world. And he's like, listen, it's all taken care of. Let the funeral home know, let the family know. And when your father gets back, please tell him I want, you know, I would like him to come see me together with you. My father came back a few days later and I had mentioned the story to him. And he right away thought like, oh, no, what trouble did you uh, get into? And I, um, I said, really, this is what happened. And he's like, okay. And we showed up at the chief medical examiner's office in New York. And the chief medical examiner looks at me as we come in and he goes, to my father, he goes, Edgar, the chutzpah that your son has is the kind that we need. And I would like your permission to uh, make him the rabbinical consultant for the medical examiner's office, just as you are. I had no idea what that meant. All I know is next thing I know, that was the first ID card that I had from any agency. And I remember coming home and my mother saying, well, if it says rabbi, you have to go for smicha. So I actually then went for smicha because my mother was very strict about it. And then through dealing with our place, I was dealing with uh, more and more issues where kids were getting arrested and central booking and dealing with local precincts. So at that point, uh, my father had arranged to um, have me join the NYPD clergy liaison program, which uh, was, you know, gave me the ability to assist in those matters. And it really just grew from there. Wow. Okay. It grew from there. And then in 2014, I believe is when you officially founded Amudim. So I'm sure, you know, we have a pretty mixed, um, pr pretty diverse crowd. So I'm sure some of them know we have, thankfully we have listeners in five countries now. Um, so wow. I'm sure some people know of a mood, but for those who don't, if you could give us a quick, a, a quick rundown, a skinny light version of what is a and how did the founding come about? Okay. So I'll, I'll go the other way around. Um, before founding Amudim, um, I have a very, very dear friend of mine by the name of uh, laser shiner who was um, helping to support the various different works that I was doing in, in public service and kept saying to me, stop trying to get a job and make money, just focus on what you're good at. And he was actually pushing me for a long time to try to, you know, do something more formal. And I kept pushing back saying, you know, once you do things more formal, then you got to start raising money. And it's just all these other headaches. And I just, I do what I do and I help whoever I can. And I'm very good about that. Just leave me alone. 
anyway, most of the work I was doing then was with uh, addiction-related issues, government-related problems, uh, you know, assisting my father with State Department, foreign affairs issues, people dying in foreign countries, dealing with victims of abuse. Anyway, and um, he kept pushing me, and I was just not really interested in it. And then in uh, the beginning of 2014 or the end of 2013, um, I don't remember the exact date, but I was um, right after Maishi Wolfson uh, had made a bris for a grandchild. It was the first grandson being named after his father, Reb Zev who's legendary in being one of the uh, pioneers of the uh, you know charitable movements in the Jewish world in America, as well as in bringing people closer to Judaism. Um, and he's like, hey, come to my house afterwards. I went to his house and then a friend of his shows up. We don't share either of our names for some reason. And like, I guess my, she assumed that we knew each other and we just start shooting the breeze. And in the conversation, different things came out and I started mentioning things. And at some point, this person looks at me and goes, what's your name? And my, she's like, you guys don't know each other. I'm like, no, he's like, Oh, my name is Tzvi Glock. What's your name? He's like, Mendy Klein. I'm like, Oh, he's like, Oh, I've been trying to reach you for a year and a half now to get to know you. You've been ignoring my emails. I'm like, you never sent me an email. So I start looking through my phone. I think it was a Blackberry then didn't see any emails. He goes, here, here's my assistant's email. Look it up. And I type in his assistant's name. And it's like this, you know, uh, completely secular name. And it's, a, my, you know, my, my boss, Robert, would like to know when he can meet with you. And I see some company name and address. And I put it into spam because I had no idea what it was about. <laughs> anyway, in the course of the conversation, um, I mentioned something. And he goes, oh, you should come move to Cleveland. There, we, ha- we don't have these issues. I'm like, I literally was drinking a soda. And I remember like literally spitting out the liquid from my nose and my mouth when he made that comment. And he's like, what? There's problems in Cleveland. It's I'm like, listen, I can't tell you any details because that's not, you know, I can't share that, but you can ask. And I gave him names of certain key people in his community that knew the work that we were doing or that I was doing at that time. Anyway, so over the next couple of weeks, we started talking more and more often. He actually went back home, had a meeting with the local uh, community leaders there, and I guess started realizing how serious these issues of, at that point, abuse um, was within the community and how it wasn't being dealt with properly. And the idea initially came up to start an organization to destigmatize um, issues of sexual abuse, addiction, mental health-related matters within the community. Um, and that was the original idea. Um, and then very shortly thereafter, we, the three of us, Maishi, Mendy Zekorin Alivracha, who unfortunately passed away young, and myself, we actually went through the filing process of <clears throat> filing a charter, came up with the name, which uh, I must say my wife helped me come up with the name Amudim, and um, started the official nonprofit. And then right after we started, we put out our first few um, public service announcements, the first video that we put out, and we hosted a conference, and it quickly turned from just, you know, awareness and destigmatization to people actually calling for help. So at that point, um, we sort of added in and we hired um, a few social workers, and because the decision was made that if we're going to try to help people, it's better to have a trained mental health professional be the one to provide that holding hand, guiding hand, and supportive, um, you know, uh, ability versus just training somebody in who understands public service and just wants to help. Um, and it really grew from there to the point that we've had over 11,000 clients and we're broken up into three different categories. One of them is what we call comprehensive clinical case management. So that's where somebody reaches out for help, a mental health professional becomes their assigned case manager who deals with everything from A to Z. So it's not just about the person who needs the help, but helping the family, dealing with insurance-related issues, treatment programs, therapists. And it's very different than just a referral because our staff actually follow up on a regular basis. Because I'm sure, as you know, Rabbi, there's often people might be in therapy for months and it just doesn't click and doesn't work. But if we're in constant communication with the person that we're helping and the therapist and the family or the treatment program, we can actually see quickly whether or not something is or isn't working and try to shift gears before people, you know, spend a lot of time, energy, and money unnecessarily. The second component about Amudim is still the awareness component where we put out, I mean, we've been averaging, I think it's one PSA video every year, um, awareness events, 
um, a lot of other you know things such as this, where we do interviews regularly because we feel that it's extremely important for people to know. So that still remains. And we're also doing a lot of work on the preventative side, school-based educational programs, um, you know, whether it's uh, social emotional learning, whether it's doing trainings for the staff, for the students, for the parents, some places, all of the above, some of the above. So it's at this point now, it's really we're putting out the fire on one side, trying to prevent it from the other side and making sure people are more aware of what it is that is going on. Wow. Okay. That was a great answer. Um to the origins of your organization, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that there are many people today who may be listening to this that are going to be very similar to what happened with you and Mendy Klein, that when you told them, you know, when they say, oh, by us, it doesn't happen. If they were drinking a Diet Coke, it would also come out of a few different places in their body. Um, I understand you're a numbers guy. Can you share with us some numbers, some statistics? I know that uh, statistics don't lie, but liars can make statistics. But without getting into that, um, for those who are also sitting on a couch drinking a Diet Coke, can you, you know, introduce a little reality to us? So I am a numbers guy, and I will proudly say that we do use Salesforce, and we have it integrated with Microsoft Power BI. Plus, we have a AI component, artificial intelligence component as well. The reason why I say that proudly is because I'm a, a big believer in not fudging numbers and not duplicating numbers. So therefore, all of our systems are auditable. And I say that proudly, not because I'm proud of the numbers, but I like to have full transparency. And the same thing, by the way, with fiscal transparency, there's a reason why we don't only have our 990s available on our website, but our audited financials as well. So these are all things that are very, very important to understand. Um, and Alcohol and substance abuse, to date, we have serviced 2,755 individual clients that have had issues um, in that arena. In 2021, we had 627 new cases of substance abuse um, that we needed to deal with and case manage. On uh, child sexual abuse, we've had a total of 3,995 clients to date. Um, and we've serviced just over a thousand in 2021 alone. Um, and the reason, you know, I say that is first of all, we do firmly believe that for everyone that we are servicing, there's probably plenty more out there that need help and that are embarrassed to get it. Um, it's also important people to understand that people, let's break it into two different categories on sexual abuse. 93% of the cases that we deal with are within the family. In addition to that, many of the clients, a larger percentage are actually coming to us when they're already in their adult years. So, you know, they're coming to us when they're in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s. Very often, it's usually when they have a child the same age that they were when they were abused. And now that's bringing back memories or some other triggers. Um, and that's something that needs to be understood that, you know, sexual abuse is something, and Mendy Klein Ovishalm used to always say it. You know, it's worse than murder because murder, you kill someone, they're dead. But someone who's a victim of abuse, if they don't get the proper help that they need, you know, as quickly as they can, then in reality, you know, they're getting killed every single day. And that's something that's really people need to understand the dynamic of it. On the addiction side, you know, people very often view the addict as, you know, that person standing on the corner holding up that sign saying, give me a dollar for a beer, you know, when you're leaving Yankee Stadium not realizing that it can be anybody. I mean, men, women, doesn't discriminate at all. No age doesn't make a difference, you know, level of religious observance or not. And, you know, very often people are struggling with addiction as a result of something, you know, somebody had a car accident and started getting painkillers, you know, prescribed to them. So it's not always something where it's going to be noticeable. And that's why there's a lot of people that are functioning addicts. And then very often they're going to be scared to want to get help because either it'll affect, you know, their family or their livelihood or the community or their standing. And unfortunately, in, in all of these arenas and in the entire mental health field in general, whether it's, you know, eating disorders, uh, self-harm, issues of suicidality, the number one reason people don't get help is because of the stigma. And it's extremely important that we can 
help destigmatize these issues while trying to get people the proper help that they need. Um, I, I think we just ran a report, and I think this past year alone, we service people like in over 400 cities throughout the United States, um, over 30 some odd states, and I think more than 25 countries around the world. I mean, it's like people are calling literally from everywhere, and we're doing the best we can to keep up with it. It's just, you know, sometimes... We could help the people that are reaching out. Sometimes we can't, you know, it can't help everybody all of the time. And sometimes it's just an issue of just availability, you know, having staff being overwhelmed, especially in, in our industry is not good either. So mm-hmm. sometimes we do have to tell people, I'm sorry, but, you know, we'll get back to you as soon as we can, or we'll try to find them another resource because we just simply can't handle the amount of caseload that's coming in. Right. No. And then if you take on too much, then all the other people who are already in the system will get lower. Right. So it has that ripple effect. Totally get that. I actually do want to um, get a little more clarity on those numbers. But before we do that, you mentioned the word stigma. And that's something that is um, really actually being dealt with also here in Columbus, Ohio, at a local level at the Ohio State uh, University. Um, the Schottensteins just started a big um, project there with Jeffrey and his mom and dad, Jane Jeannie. Um, about mental health research and, and destigmatizing it all. Um, what is the most successful method approach of taking away the stigma? I think early education. You know, if we can start with educating in elementary schools on social emotional well being and make it the norm, then it will automatically follow suit. Um, the shock and awe effect, while it is very important to wake people up, on the general sense, is not going to change the tide completely. It's going to change how people view things. But to actually affect change, I think we've got to start with teaching healthy living at a younger age um, and not being scared to do so. You know, I get this all mm-hmm. the time, especially from schools, especially in private schools, where it's like, oh, we don't want to teach about A, B, and C, because if we do so, then more people are going to maybe learn about it that wouldn't have known about it. Yeah. And, and I usually come back with the following statement. You know, how many people have taught their child and at what age to look both ways before crossing a street? And if you think about what most parents actually say to the child, one could suggest that it could be traumatic. Look both ways, because if not, God forbid, you can get hit by a car and die. Right. Is that not something that people don't want to tell a young child yet we do. And how many children are like, Hey, let me not look and run across the street and see if it really happens. They don't statistically, it is not accurate to say that when you start educating about certain topics, that means people are going to then go and do it. But it is a great method for people who are either scared of change or, or not looking to address issues to be able to utilize that and say, this is how, you know, why we can't get to A, B, C, and D. And I, I mean, you know, and I, I say this, you know, they say, I think the uh, average in the United States is, I think the average uh, teenager has their first um, unapproved drink, uh, I think by the age of 11 or 12. And the first time that their parents discuss it with them is like, I think 14 or 15. And this is like a national survey that was done. Um, it's actually listed on drugabuse.gov, which is a great resource for a lot of addiction issues. And I, I always find that ironic. Like, you know, if we know that people are doing things, you know, we got to get our head out of the sand and just say, you know what, we need to address these issues. I mean, and that's just the reality. You know, people make a big deal and I'm not minimizing it. Don't get me wrong over Internet and unfiltered Internet. And even there, very often, they're not appropriately educating people mm-hmm. as to why these issues are truly there. It's always almost always looked at as, oh, it's because of pornography. Right. Well, right, I mean, right. don't get me wrong. That is an issue, but that's not the issue. What about people meeting people on the Internet that they don't know? Mm-hmm. What about people utilizing others' information to, you know, for inappropriate things? Or what mm-hmm. about people that are, you know, looking to abuse others or, you know, Online bullying is a huge component in it, you know, so cyberbullying. So again, but even there, you know, very often within our community, instead of educating appropriately, we're educating based on something else and we're not providing the tools for safety that will help the students understand why they need to keep, you know, their internet usage monitored and safe and do so in a proper manner. So I think early education um, is very much the key, but early education in a healthy sense, you know, Mm -hmm. not in a negative or scary sense. So if you teach kids at a younger age about self-worth, about 
feelings about emotions, then they become stronger to be able to address issues as it comes up in life. So I, I really think that would be probably the best way to go about this. Yeah, no, that's great. And you also mentioned um, about internet. We just literally last week released an episode um, with Dr. Ellie Shapiro for the Digital uh, Citizenship great, Project. Great, great friend guy. and great, great guy. I love him. He's and really good. He had people. that same approach that we can't make this all about pornography. That's one of the issues, but there's a, you know, you're missing the boat if that's all you talk about. So I could really, I could really appreciate that. Now, I want to ask you about the numbers that you shared with us. Um, do they apply more in specific demographics, whether it's income-based, religious-based, gender, age, uh, nope, or anything? Nope, 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 nope. These are very much equal across the board, wealthy families, poor families, from divorced homes, from seemingly healthy homes, religious, not religious, secular, Jewish, non-Jewish families that were one way and went the other way, you know, it's really equal opportunity offender, whether it's addiction, whether it's abuse, it it makes no difference anymore. The only difference is the reaction and response once people know that there's an issue. And the more tight knit a community is, the more difficult it is for them to have an appropriate response. But I want to do a little test with you, Rabbi. Okay. (laughs) If I tell you, Rabbi, can you give me an example of a really insular community? What comes to mind? Meisharim. Um, okay. So a ultra Haredi community where people are either following. They, they stay in a circle. They don't really leave the circle. Right. So if I were to say to you, is Columbus, Ohio considered an insular community? What would your answer be? Uh, relative to Meisharim, no, but compared to the bigger cities, um, to some extent. Okay. And what if I say, I'm just making up a name, you know, Congregation Beth Abraham in Columbus, if there is, I don't even know if there is such a synagogue, I just made up a name. You're safe. Okay. Is that an, is that a insular synagogue? What would you? Hmm. Um, Let's say it is. I think it is, let's say. So let me, so let me tell you, this is where, you know, we try to explain it to people. Insular community in terms of dealing with addiction, abuse, and mental health related issues is not so much based on where people keep into their own circles in the, you know, Hasidic or ultra Orthodox type of way, but it's more about where people's lives surround the same circle for what they're doing. So if somebody attends the same synagogue as their friends and works in the same industry and kids are in the same type of schools, it then gets the same category of insular community when it comes to people being scared to address these issues because that same stigma is going to be there because, oh my gosh, if I go to rehab, other people in my synagogue are going to realize I'm not there. Where am I? Or if you know my child goes to a treatment program, people in the school are going to realize, and then what are they going to say? And very often, these are the same reasons. So when people say, oh, but the communities react differently... That is true, but we have to keep in mind that communities that are insular by nature, where the circle surrounds certain key elements, always end up showing the same signs and symptoms um, as those that people would traditionally think are extremely insular in nature. Mm -hmm. And would you say it's because they feel by getting help, they're kind of shattering their entire world because their world is in one, you know, in one hand? Um, so that's definitely a part of it, but it's it's not just shattering their entire world. It's also the embarrassment. At the end of the day, it's never comfortable for people to have to go through, uh, you know, these types of issues. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I'm embarrassed to repeat the story, but I, I do repeat it often. A very, very dear friend of mine um, who's very involved in the mental health arena, he's an educator, um, had repeated the story that a, a woman had come to him whose daughter was a victim of sexual abuse and had turned to drugs. And said to him, you know, I really just wish that my daughter would have cancer instead. And he goes, why do you say that? He goes, well, because when somebody in the community has cancer, you know, the neighbors make sure there's food in the house. There's people there to provide support. There's all these other things that need to be done. And here, my other kids don't have any friends because people don't want to let them over to my house because I have a daughter who's, you know, not religious or all these other issues. And nobody wants to invite us to anything and all these other components. It's like, what are we supposed to do? And it's a very sad reality. But at the same time, let's not forget, it wasn't that many years ago where you couldn't say the word cancer. 
it was, you know, the disease, the illness. People were embarrassed to talk about it. Yeah, so yeah. the machla, you know, and we had the same thing years before that. If people had a child that was born with a developmental disability, they would try to hide that as well. So as a community, we're definitely getting better about destigmatizing things. And it's just time to get the next important topics right. destigmatized. Keep moving the needle. Yeah. Um, you mentioned... Um you know, the, uh, someone with abuse and molestation. Um, are there predators in every community? I mean, you know, it's a tough thing to answer because if we know about them, then hopefully there wouldn't be. Right. Um, but it would be safe to assume that there is no way to say that, you know, a community is predator free. I mean, there's no way to say that. There's no way to say that every community has predators. There is the potential everywhere and the better educated and aware people are and the better educated the communities are and the children are and the families are, you know, the better the possibility of preventing or thwarting off any potential, you know, incidents. Yeah. Okay. So the reason why I ask that is because just a few weeks ago, there was a pretty tragic situation at a uh, synagogue in Texas near Dallas, about an hour or so away. And um, it, it unfortunately reminded people of what happened just, you know, two or so years at three or so years ago in Pittsburgh and then Poway and then Jersey city. And, you know, all these episodes of um, gun violence in Jewish uh, institutions and anti-Semitism, et cetera. And they're terrible. They're horrible. We have to do everything we can to keep people safe, both um, physically and mentally that they don't have to be so worried about that. My question to you is if we were to think about how many synagogues are in the country how many times people gather in that synagogue and, you know, add all those you know numbers up and then contrast that to how many incidents are. And even one is too many. I don't want to sound that it's not one is one too many, but then contrast that to how many stories of, let's say, abuse in a synagogue basement or something like that could happen. Is, is that more likely? And are we looking at it the same? So the answer is as follows. First of all, um, yes, one is one too many on any matter. And I say that all the time. Right. Um, but the answer is, yeah, it is certainly safe to state that there are definitely far greater incidents of uh, abuse um, in multiple different forms taking place than in issues pertaining to, uh, you know, school shootings or synagogue shootings or in any house of worship or religious uh, component. But it, it's important to understand two pieces to that. It's much, and this is a, a reality. It's now I'm not happy about this, but it's the reality. It's much easier for people to say, let's just raise up our hands and we're going to go get trained and learn about, you know, gun safety and we're going to keep us protected because that's a threat that everybody can A, understand and B, becomes very obvious and popular uh, and very popular. But right. But the, the point I'm saying is more of, of like, it's obvious that if, you know, mm-hmm. John Doe comes in with a gun into a synagogue or into any place or public location, John Doe can kill many people. People don't view the same when it comes to a predator. As a matter of fact, more often than not, we'll be dealing with someone that you know we know is a predator, but for one reason or another can't be legally dealt with either because the victim is over 18 and is refusing to press charges or because uh, you know um, it's within the family and they're not giving out the correct information or whatever the reason is, but we know somebody's a threat. And now what happens? So let's even assume one synagogue or one you know school or one location will say, get rid of this person. Somebody else will take them in and then there'll always be that person saying, well, the person changed. I mean, I have a letter from a very, very prominent person uh, that clearly states in this letter, um, I so-and-so know John Doe and know what he did to his siblings and have counseled him and he understands what he did was wrong now. He didn't understand it then and he is no longer a threat and I will continue helping him. And this person who wrote this letter is a very prominent person who really believed it except when this person went and then offended others. And what was the purpose of that? So people are very easy to uh, forgive or try to say, oh, it's really not such a big deal, or they'll use the religious aspect. Oh, it's Lashon Hara, you're speaking ill of somebody else. You know, you don't know for sure if it really happened. Again, it's unfortunate. Um, But you also have to remember that most incidents of abuse are either within the family or very, very close family friends. So, and by the way, even with that being the case, I'm still going to say there's more incidents in synagogues 
institutions, camps, etc., than there are in you know public shootings, um, even with most of the incidents being uh, within the family. But I do think that if we as a community would stand up and say, you know what, enough is enough. And the same way when there's gun violence, everybody jumps and says, oh, we got to do something. There's no reason why this is looked at any less. If anything, this is killing more people every year. Right. Uh, you mentioned camps. Um, I heard once on a different show that where this topic was discussed and someone said on it, um, camp is got to be the number one place any predator would go to. It's just the perfect setting. Do you buy that? No. And I sent my kids to camp and I went to camp and yes, there is abuse in camp and there's abuse everywhere. Mm-hmm. The number one place is in the home. Are we going to uh-huh. say that kids shouldn't live at home? Right. I mean, you know, people have to live their lives. Yes. It is a place where if someone is a predator and the camp doesn't have safety precautions in place and mm-hmm. ways of, you know, preventing things, is it a place that it can actually, you know, occur more frequently? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that just means that we have to be safer and be more, you know, sure. vigilant and just be smarter about it. But it doesn't mean that uh, that is the number one place. But yeah, if somebody is a predator and they want to think of a place to go to and they know of a certain camp that the, you know, staff and administration doesn't take it seriously, then yeah, maybe they will want to go to that camp. So that's why it's important right. people to take these matters very seriously. Sure. Yeah. And I wasn't uh, a counselor in camp all that long ago. And even then I remember having uh you know, meetings with our head counselor and, and owner of the camp to talk about some basic things that we could all do to just make sure these things don't happen. So I, I, I think by and large, the camps, at least that I know of, um, are, are trying to do their best in this. Um, I don't think it's just camps. I think it's the communities overall. We're definitely light years ahead of where we were years ago. Right, right. But of course, we still have a long way to go to be, you know, where we need to be. Sure. Now I want to go over to COVID if we can and how that may have um, affected Amudim. Did you see... Um, significant rise in cases all over. Do you think that people may have missed the boat? They were just juggling public health and they forgot about the mental health part of it. Tell us a little bit from your uh, side of the table, what that was like. So, I mean, first of all, COVID had a huge effect on Amudim and our caseload in multiple, multiple aspects. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, on the abuse side, we, as I've mentioned a few times, most abuse occurs in the home, people close to the home. So, I mean, unfortunately, there were many situations of people that were quarantined with their abusers for extended amounts of time. You know, that's an extremely dangerous situation just on and of itself. The relapse rate from addictions as a direct result of COVID were tremendously high. Daytime alcoholism, okay, across the board. I mean, we have mothers, 40 years old, 45 years old with four or five kids not being able to balance. This kid's school has from phone calls. This one is on Zoom. This one is this, trying to balance and just not being able to handle it. People, you know, not every person was able to financially withstand COVID, loss of jobs, you know, so there were so many components of it that really we saw a huge increase of caseload throughout COVID. And we then started receiving a lot of calls that were not necessarily case related, but just people that just didn't know where to turn. So we ended up launching a, a support line that was staffed by mental health professionals, had thousands of calls in that line. We had it open for about six, seven months. But then as COVID, so I guess, I don't even know what word to use, started like dwindling down, you know, the last few months, we started noticing an even bigger increase. And in the industry, there's a term they're calling, you know, COVID reentry syndrome or other terminologies where people are now catching their breath and realizing that, oh my gosh, this is wrong or that's wrong and finally seeking help. But then there's also another side to look at, which is at the end of the day, as a result of COVID, mental health has been destigmatized in such a rapid way Mm -hmm. compared to pre-COVID that a lot of people that are calling are calling for things they probably should have reached out to years ago, but now they're finally reaching out. Mm-hmm. So overall, we got hit on all sides as a result of COVID. We lost, you know, funding. We had more cases. We needed more staff. And, it, you know, just everything across the board, we had to come out with. Uh, we put out a whole bunch of videos uh, during COVID um, on how to deal with stress in the home, pressures in the home, you know, not even the standard hard hitting PSA videos that we do, but really just techniques of how to remain calm, how to remain relaxed just so many different things as a, as a direct result of COVID. And it wasn't just us. It was everybody in the industry. I mean, we had calls with UJA, you know, every couple of weeks with multiple other nonprofits in the mental health sector on the calls, you know, what can we do to support each other? What can we do? You know, who's providing what services? I mean, it's just the whole 
area, an arena got slammed on all sides. Wow. Wow. And I want to now go to a, a really sad um, situation that happened regarding a very popular um, author of books in Israel. I mean, as a child, I grew up with this author's books and, and so many other people. And it was you know, devastating to hear the news. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak for myself. To me, the hardest part wasn't the fact that such a person existed. Um, there are not, you know, there are people that unfortunately go down a really bad road that happens throughout history. To me, what the, what the, the tragedy that really, you know, really makes me sick every time I think about it is how this was allowed on that level for that long. And that, you know, that, that like this was going on for years with so many people, dozens of people came forward, which tells you probably dozens more did not. And it seems like dozens of people knew about it. So how is it possible that these things are going on and people don't feel some sort of sense of, you know, achrayas, responsibility. There's a, you mentioned the mitzvah of Lashon Hara. There's also the, if not speaking evil, but there's also the mitzvah of Lo Salman of Damriecha to not stand by, you know, your brother's blood. So how, how do these things go on and what do we do to stop it? So unfortunately you are preaching to the choir. And <laughs> okay. the reason why I say that is because this is like one of my biggest pet peeves. You know, there are those that have said an abuser is sick they need help, whether agree, disagree. I mean, obviously, someone who's doing these things is a sick person. Right. It's not a justification. Right. But there's zero justification for someone that knew about abuse going on and doing nothing. And those people are prohibiting, committing the prohibition of don't stand by while your brother's blood is being spilled, because that's what's actually happening. And this is one of my biggest pet peeves. I actually feel that those who protect Abusers are actually more guilty in a certain sense than the abuser. Because first of all, if they're protecting one, they're probably protecting many, which means there's every person that is victimized. Once a person knows about it and doesn't do anything to stop it, the blood is on that person's hands. But let's ask ourselves the key question here. How does this go on so long? Because secrecy breeds secrecy. And if people are too scared or embarrassed or don't feel that they're going to be believed or won't get the help or support that they need, why would they come out and speak about it? You know, at the end of the day, you look at a lot of these cases, and this is where, it, you know, you get it from both sides of the mouth, right? And I, I get this all the time. Somebody will call up and say, you know, I went to my rabbi, and he said, I'm not allowed to go to the police. I reach out to the rabbi, and the rabbi goes, well, it's only one victim. We don't know if it's true. And then a few months later, they'll find out that there's a second victim. They'll go back to the rabbi. Okay, now that there's two victims, you can go to the police, but only one should go to the police, because there's no reason for both to go, because the person's... And then the community says, oh, it's only one victim, not many victims. So we're always trying to find ways to make excuses even today. Now, I, I don't know of a justification, but I do know one thing. If a victim literally goes through hell twice, right, the abuse and then the after effects, what that does is it scares off other victims from feeling comfortable to come forward. Right. And, and that's why I, I was so upset after, you know, this whole incident where, the key figures in our community were talking about how, well, this person died. You can't speak bad of him. You can't this, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to change that tone. Enough is enough. Let's show people that you have to speak out because they need to feel comfortable. So it is a major issue, but it goes back to the same component of, you know, a person comes into a synagogue with a loaded gun, everybody, oh, we have to protect everybody. But hearing about things like this, Again, at the same time, it's very hard to force a victim of abuse to do something. You know, our goal is to get them the help and the courage that they need to be able to lead a healthy life. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it's it's a scary thing. And, and I can't tell you how many people we have that are clients of ours suffering from PTSD, not from their abuse, but because they were abused, they didn't do anything to stop it. And now another loved one or a friend or family member or someone that they know was abused by that same person. And now they feel guilty because even though they might have been very young at the time, but they didn't do anything to stop it. And now it happened to other people. And we have a lot of clients in that category, too. Mm -hmm. So I, I do say to people that when when things like this get reported, it, it actually helps the person themselves as well. So it shouldn't breed additional of these types of issues. Wow. Okay. You know, we last, was it last week or two weeks ago, we recorded uh, Rev. Aaron Lapiansky, who wrote an article in the Mishpacha about this. And I asked him to share a message on a individual level regarding the Hashkafa, a Torah look, how do we, um, you know, a, a takeaway. And he shared a beautiful idea 
um, about some of the, you know, he, he mentioned the Mishnah in Sota, Kol Haroa Sota Bikol Kula Yazar anyone sees a Sota in her disgraced form, has to abstain from wine, which is a way of saying you have to take something upon yourself. And he, he talked a little bit about that from a, you know, a Ruchnius, a spiritual Hashkafa outlook. Um, I wonder if you could share with us a message um, with a practical takeaway, um, both parents and teach, you know, community leaders, teachers, you know, rabbis or whoever, principals or whoever, um, I guess we could start on a local level for parents. What is, what, what is the message that parents should be taking? Because, you know, ultimately um, if you're saying that it's close to home where a lot of these things happen, I mean, the first address is to moms and dads, um, you know, what, you know, that they should, you know, up their game in terms of making sure the environment is safe. So what would your first message be to them? So, I mean, the first message is, you know, don't be scared to have open conversations with your children. First of all, it's going to give them the ability to feel comfortable to speak if there is a problem. And second of all, we all would rather our children learn from us than learn things (laughs) from the street. Okay. And we can all talk about that. Um, at the same time, you know, we also want to be smart about it, age appropriate. You know, you don't want parents to tell a, a child who's too young to understand certain things, what they should do. But the first takeaway is don't be scared to talk. But more importantly is, you know, let's first speak to our children. Why don't we start with that? How many parents actually spend time speaking to their children? What did you do today? How was school? General. You know, what do you want to do? I mean, I, there was a famous story that I heard from someone who says that a parent brought a child to him and said, you know, my kid's got A, B, and C issues. Can you maybe meet with him and figure out what we can do? And he turns to this father and he goes, what's your kid's favorite soda? And he's like, hmm, I don't know, maybe Sprite, maybe Coke. He goes, okay, your homework is to first get to know your kid yourself, then come to me and see how I can help. Spend time with the kids, play board games with them, just talk to them. Let them feel comfortable that they have someone who to talk to, you know, don't answer the phone in the middle of dinner, you know, mm-hmm. take the call 20 minutes later, hang up the phone. Don't walk into your house while you're on the phone, you know, so that your kids know that when you come into the house, that's what's important. Right, right. And, and that, that would be my, you know, my first practical advice to parents. Mm-hmm. And okay, great. Now that's beautiful. Now let's, let's go to on a communal level, on a leadership level, um, on an institutional level, what should we uh, be doing in a more, uh, you know, macro sense uh, as takeaways from this? I'm going to say the same thing I've said multiple times throughout this, uh, you know, discussion we're having. Yeah. Early education, don't be scared of it, and a zero tolerance policy. That's it. It's really, I mean, it sounds simple, and it is, and it mm-hmm. truly is. You know, the same way there's a zero Nobody's going to let somebody walk into a shul and steal from the, you know, the charity box in front of everybody there and walk out with it and say, oh, that's right. acceptable. Right. You know, we have to make a zero tolerance policy for abuse, a zero tolerance, tolerance policy for those who are trying to attack the victims to get them to not deal with it. And a educational policy where we're not going to be scared to educate, you know, our communities in a healthy manner. Right. I mean, obviously, a healthy manner, a manner that is in line with our beliefs. Don't get me wrong, age appropriate, but we can't be scared of it because right. Right. guess what? If people are educated properly, they won't let something go on for you know 30 years with potentially hundreds of victims. And even one is one too many, but each one here is you know, even more so. So that, that would be... Yeah. Uh, you know, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Elephant, uh, my Rebbe at the Good Convention, um, I learned by Rabbi Elephant of the Mirror, and he made that point of zero tolerance very, very strong. And uh, my last question to you is, because I know we're running out of time, is um, you have your hands in a lot of, um, you know, very, very stressful um, fields. And what does Zviglok do for Zviglok's mental health and sanity? I see a therapist once a week, sometimes twice a week, if need be. I see a psychiatrist once a month, not embarrassed about it. Um, I, I'm blessed to have a very, very supportive family, my wife, my children, parents, my mother-in-law, you know, just very, very supportive of, you know, of what I do and understand, you know, that it is stressful. Um, but I'm the first to admit it. And I also have uh, others who I get to speak to, you know, I call it peer support, other sure. people in the nonprofit space or in the mental health space that I just communicate with and just be like, you know, and, and I'm not, 
I, I like to practice what I preach. It's okay to admit that one is not okay. It's okay to not be okay. You don't always have to be okay. And I, I just try to live by that as well. And you, you know you're what? You're a human. You live. We all are. Right, right. Beautiful. That is great. And I'll end off with my, with a bracha. We say, anyone who is involved with the needs of the community, Hashem should repay them and take away all sickness and there should only be blessings for you, your family, your organization, their families, and all of those that are trying to help us be saved. Hashem should bless you and everybody that we should only have Yeshua's, Rufuos, and Simchas, and only good things for us and our entire families. Amen. Thank you. And thank you for doing your part in helping to spread awareness of these very, very important uh, topics because we really need to, uh, we all got to do it together. Right. No, that's, uh, that's what we do. Kolot is many voices. We have to cover many fields and get the experts take on them. So thank you. Absolutely. Have you enjoyed Kolot episodes? If so, I want to tell you about a special opportunity, how you can help us continue this work while also supporting all the Torah learning at the Kolot. The Kolot is currently having its annual raffle and by becoming a raffle sponsor, or purchasing raffle tickets, you help us continue all the Torah learning and teaching we offer. You can win two tickets to Israel, the latest iMac, and gift cards to your favorite shopping center. But it gets even better. Thanks to several Colo benefactors, every raffle ticket and sponsorship will result in the dollar amount getting tripled. The final raffle drawing will take place on March 28th at our raffle celebration event, Featuring Ohio State Buckeyes head coach Ryan Day. Stay tuned for more details. The theme of this year's campaign is Rise Up as we highlight all the new and exciting things the Kolal is doing. By rising up and participating in the raffle, you help us keep up this vital work. Our rabbis teach us there is only one mitzvah that is equal to all the other mitzvahs. And that is the mitzvah of Torah study. You can be part of this while entering into our raffle. So please visit RiseUpColumbus.com to consider a sponsorship or purchase your raffle tickets.